We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by Nicholas Smith of The Telegraph. Good evening. And New Bloom's Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. Tonight we'll be discussing a raid on the offices of a pro-unification party headed by a former mob boss, possible responses to airlines that choose to change Taiwan's designation, indigenous weapons systems, a new draft Economic Immigration Act and the ROC flag making an appearance at an international sporting event. And we'll begin, though, with a tale of two bears, a tweet and CNN, which proved a lethal combination that led the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to remove a social media post and explain that the now-removed Twitter post was, in fact, humorous. That, after US cable network CNN, reported that the government here in Taiwan was mocking Beijing. Now, the CNN report came after the Foreign Ministry tweeted a tweet, if that's what you call it, with an image of the Tourism Bureau's Formosan black bear mascot named O bear with a caption reading that he was dismayed that his cousin Winnie's movie had been banned by Chinese authorities. The tweet went on to say that make no mistake all bears are created equal in Taiwan and Christopher Robin is screening nationwide here in Taiwan. Now the foreign ministry says the tweet which was made in both English and Japanese was aimed at highlighting Taiwan's freedom of speech and meant to show to the world that Taiwan is a democratic country that enjoys freedom of speech using a humorous tone. However the ministry later removed the tweet following the CNN report saying that it led to some misinterpretations. Now of course Beijing has reportedly banned the new Disney movie because people in China compare Winnie the Pooh's appearance to that of President Xi Jinping Ping, and the popular children's book character has also previously been censored in China. So, Brian, did you find Winnie the Pooh offensive, mate? Uh, I'm not too sure. It's kind of funny to me. It's a strange incident. I think that uh, the Taiwanese government sometimes has issues with Twitter with regards to its messaging. Um, this time around, it decided to troll the Chinese government, and then it kind of decided later that that was a bad idea. So I think just kind of indecision by the government, but it is kind of amusing. Um, yeah, certainly you can see Christopher Robin in Taiwan, although I'm not sure a lot of people will actually see it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I really don't see what the problem with the tweet was myself. I mean, I, I've actually quite enjoyed the the, the um, foreign ministry's latest take on Twitter that they have been trolling people. They, they trolled the the double on the WHA. Um, issue and they've been quite humorous while making a point and I think that's actually more effective than a very dry Twitter account. I think the, the shame in this um, in this whole instant is that they didn't just stick with what they had tweeted I mean they, they put out something that was humorous, you know why wouldn't the why wouldn't Taiwan gently mock Beijing for being so uptight about a cartoon character I mean that's just completely normal um, but, you know the rest of the world finds it really quite amusing or bemusing or just a bit strange that Winnie the Pooh is banned as well so I, I really think it's an overreaction by the Taiwanese government then to pull the tweet they've kind of lost the moment there they, ha they had a good story, they got some publicity and then they kind of lost their nerve which is a bit of a shame yeah, Brian, I mean, yeah. do you, do you think... In, that we, yeah, we live in a strange age of uh, politics by tweeting, which, as Donald Trump is probably the most famous example. I think the Taiwanese government is just somewhat confused. I think that uh, particularly Taiwanese politicians will sometimes venture onto Twitter, but they sometimes are unprepared when they actually get responses from Twitter, because I think not a lot of people use uh, Twitter in Taiwan. I think it actually points to kind of 
how the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is not so good at outreaching to the town international world sometimes that it gets confused or it gets nervous about things that might actually have a have resonance with the public um sometimes it's, it's just not too good at communicating but do you think they should have pulled it or just left it there i think they probably should have left it it just becomes a bigger uh, news incident if uh, they pull it <laughs> it just looks a bit lame if they pull it it looks like they've just kind of um you know they put out this quite bold tweet and then they kind of back down and that just reflects kind of badly um <laughs> you know in the original message the original message was was kind of funny um it got some attention and it did highlight the fact that winnie the pooh is not banned in taiwan and i i do think that um the ministry of foreign affairs and also the rest of the government do have to just find the tone that they want to to portray on social media i think you know um they they are starting to see that twitter has a wide reach in the world and that you can really use it to put out your messaging that's a good thing um i just i think maybe they just have to get into their stride and and find the kind of messaging that they want to put out and of course what's ironic here brian is you know when when there was a typhoon when mm-hmm. there's lots of rain when there's a natural disaster an earthquake here in taiwan the local media of course the cable television news when CNN reports about these issues, mm-hmm. it's all over it. So CNN mm-hmm. is reporting about Taiwan, and they mm-hmm. can never get enough of it. Mm-hmm. And CNN reports about one tweet, yeah, and they it's, it's pull like it. Surprising. There's always a international. There's always coverage about international coverage of Taiwan, which is kind of strange meta phenomenon in Taiwan, because um, you know Taiwan is just desperately longing after international attention, and when it does get it, sometimes it does back down because it's it's not sure if it, it offended somebody somehow or did not come off in the the right way. Um, it's, it's ironic too, though, because Taiwanese politicians frequently do use uh, humor on Facebook. So it's kind of strange that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs would get so afraid over something on Twitter. And could you get Twitter in China? Does no, but uh, um, state well, media is on Twitter. Yeah, you, funnily you, enough, you can with a VPN. <laughs> yeah, of course. I, I mean. <laughs> Twitter also is that once you start with social media, you have to know that it's public. So people are going to pick up what mm. you say. If you say something interesting, you know, just don't back away from it. Think, if you're uh, going yeah. to say it, say it and, and then don't back down. With Facebook, too, a lot of times politicians will post things and then later delete things. But too late, it's already been screenshotted. And the same is true with Twitter. I think uh, it's something that, you know, you really just have to be on point. Yes, just once it's out there, it's out there forever. It'll never go away. And what's so offensive about winning the poo? I mean, you could call someone a lot worse than Winnie the Pooh, I would have thought. Well, yeah. I mean, we'd have to ask the Chinese that. We, we don't really know. They're the ones They're the ones that look kind of petty and stupid over this. So the pig is also banned from China. <laughs> yeah. I, so, I mean, Taiwan should just double down and, and show, show that they're different. Put more tweets about Winnie the Pooh. You don't see that happening, though, Brian, no? No, I don't think so. I think uh, unless they, they they do decide to get back on this. I mean, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of contestation between Taiwan about and China about bears, for example. The Formosan black bear versus the panda. Um, a boxing th- match, maybe. That's right. Why not? Why not have a boxing match between these bears? You can make a nice cartoon out of it. <laughs> but, I mean, who, who do you think does the Ministry of Foreign Affairs tweeting? I wonder that a lot, actually. Um, I, yeah, I don't know, but I think it's I think it's someone kind of pretty young and sassy who understands social media, and I I think mm-hmm. it'd be a real shame if they were curbed and they were kind of reined in because actually um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs certainly has has. Uh, 
gained a presence quite quickly on Twitter because they have been doing some kind of bold and humorous and you know slightly trolling tweets, and that that's a good thing. I mean, other governments have have used that as well. Uh, it's not been used maliciously. It's just it's been used in a humorous way that that gets a point across, and I I think that's you know a, a really great way for Taiwan to kind of make its presence known. And it would be a real shame if if it reverted back to kind of very dull press release tweets. No one wants to read those. Brian, people in Taiwan don't usually use Twitter, though. No, they usually don't. Um, so actually, I generally think that a lot of social media accounts in run by the Taiwanese government are just sort of anybody's put in charge. Um, sometimes it's actually just someone that has good English that was even just drafted and they're doing the kind of substitute military service. Um, that's happened before. And so it's possible that this is also the case. And in those cases, um, because there's not a lot of oversight, sometimes the higher-ups will freak out when they um, see things actually getting a reaction on Twitter. Um, but that's just maybe just a sign of how the Taiwanese government should just generally take this more seriously and have more focused attention on this. Yeah, I mean, the rest of the world's on Twitter. There's yeah, no point right. in Taiwan, like in it's Taiwanese not, government, yeah. not engaging with Twitter because Taiwanese people don't read it. I mean, there's plenty already on Facebook or other social media that Taiwanese people use. Mm-hmm. If you want to get your message across to the rest of the world, you have to be on things like Twitter. I mean, look at uh, Trump or mm-hmm. Narendra Modi, the Indian prime minister. I mean, he's got millions of followers and, and it's just a really big thing around the world. So you can't ignore it. You just have to have a strategy and you, you have to be smart about it. Mm-hmm. I also see kind of no cohesion between uh, different parts of the government. For example, Taiwan has a very on-point Twitter game, but then you have the Ministry of Tourism, which just is not really doing that well and just posts some very strange things. And then maybe you have the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which is somewhere between and just flip-flops between. Um, and Cohen is another politician that's been very active on Twitter to great success in terms of international leveraging. Um, yeah, yeah. I think Brian's right that it, it's become a bit. It, it is a bit disjointed because I think it, it seems that different departments are feeling their way, but they do need to have some kind of coherent plan mm. of how do we tackle Twitter mm-hmm. or Instagram or whatever social media it is and get out there, but just be a bit more consistent. I didn't mm. think you had to be a coherent t- Twitter. I mean, <laughs> I mean somebody I runs it, a country, it, Twitter's it, a lot, and it doesn't be yeah. not overly coherent, is yeah, it? Yeah, but that's, that's not really... <laughs> productive for the rest of the world is it i mean you don't want to you don't want to become like you know some angry troll who's who everyone just reviles on twitter you you want to you china, know china the global times which is like that <laughs> on twitter yeah you, you have to just be smart about it and and take it seriously and not think it's just some random thing that kids are into so more humorous things the better basically yeah, that helps to get a, a point across, absolutely. Or so long as it's it's a combination of humorous things that are about salient issues. Don't go too far. Or strike up a good balance, I would say. Anyway, moving on, and prosecutors this Tuesday searched the office of the Chinese Unity Promotion Party and the home of party head Jiang Anle on suspicion of receiving funding from China to finance their November local election campaigns. Now, the homes of other leading party figures, including Jiang's son Jiang Wei, were also searched. Now, prosecutors took four party employees away for questioning following the raids, all of whom were later released, and they interviewed Jiang Anle and his son Jiang Wei on 
on Wednesday and Thursday of this week. Now, the Taipei District Prosecutor's Office says it formed a task force in September of last year to investigate Zhang's political party and its association with organised crime, because, of course, Zhang Anle was a rather mobbed-up member of the Bamboo Union once upon a time. And prosecutors say that Zhang and his party are now under investigation for violating the National Security Act, the Political Donations Act and the Organised Crime Prevention Act. Now, Zhang, for himself, of course, is denying any wrongdoing, and he gleefully told reporters after being questioned by prosecutors that, you know, he didn't accept any funding from China and his money all comes from his companies, which happen to operate in China. And basically, he went on to claim that the DPP government is using the judiciary to persecute him. His son said much the same, only his son added that, well, we don't mind being questioned, only we'd like to know what we're being questioned about. So, Brian, this political party, of course, is somewhat controversial. That's right. Um, and I think what is a good question now is, does is this a mark a precedent for the Tsai administration? Does it intend to widen the scope of parties' questions about money they get from China? Um, particularly with regards to the uh, CUPP, they are quite a low-hanging target. They, they, they engage in violent acts on the streets, and everyone knows this. And so when you do go after them, and they are known for their very outspoken pro-China views, then it does seem like there is some justification to this. Taiwanese society sometimes reacts badly against the suggestion of any authoritarian actions by the government, even when this is maybe a justified investigation. Um, for example, we saw that with backlash against the Tsai administration for questioning Wang Bijong of the New Party, because he is a known public figure. And so when you question him about his ties from China, even if it seems very likely that they exist, there's still public backlash. And so going after someone that's obviously has a past in organized crime that will minimize blowback. Um, but the question is how high they will go now. For example, there's obviously the KMT, but you also have leading media outlets that have been accused of taking money from China. It's also further a quandary as to how you distinguish between uh, justified donations and attempts by the Chinese government to influence politics or the media or what have you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, this is this is something that's been on the radar for a while, isn't it? He's faced these uh, you know similar allegations for it seems like a, a year or so now, and I. I you know, if if there are um, if there's genuine wrongdoing, then of course it has to be investigated. But so far, the authorities don't seem to have come up with any evidence that of um, of Chang using Chinese money to influence politics in Taiwan. So the onus is on them. But I do think you know, agreeing with Brian that that he is his party is low hanging fruit. It's very obvious target and that um, there's a lot of fuss made over his party when actually it doesn't appear to be particularly politically influential in Taiwan. Um, you know, he doesn't have any seats in the parliament and and it seems that he has kind of limited scope when it comes to actual politics. And perhaps the authorities should be looking a lot more at the unseen um, influences of China. Um, Brian mentioned, you know, uh, influence over the media. Um, I'm sure Mr. Chang isn't the only person who has businesses in China um, or has, you know, he, he's just very overtly pro-China, um, which makes him uh, an easy person to target. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other influences that perhaps are being a bit more ignored. Well, of course, Brian, a couple of weeks ago, they found Zhang's son, Zhang Wei, guilty of causing a disturbance because, of course, they were involved in the Tai Da violence, weren't That's they? Right. That's right. Um, he was present on site and he was intimidating his students, uh, possibly even just being physically violent towards them. 
And so this is probably the the most recent high-profile incident in which the uh, members of the party have been openly accused of violence and been seen doing this. Um, previously, it was criticized that Taipei Mayor Koenjo was not doing enough in order to investigate that incident and how it happened and take action against um, those involved. But this also just does not reflect well on the party. The party has a history of violence, and so it does seem like Taiwanese society will not be so sympathetic. Um, at the same time, I think just raising the accusation of political persecution by the DPP is proven effective by uh, for members of the Pam Blue camp. Their side will always believe these accusations, and it can be a motivation for action. Um, at the same time, I don't, I don't kind of don't see this having resonance with Taiwanese society writ large. But of course, the Interior Minister did come out this week and say, "Well, we are going to clamp down on organised crime." Mm-hmm. That's right, um, and so that's also a question because it's been such a long-standing question of how much ties this party still has towards organised crime, um, and that could be that could be a big deal. And it's also a question of how how do you um, tackle organised crime because now it, it's not so much gang warfare on the streets anymore. It's all kind of very uh, much more sophisticated um, financial crime. Um, and you know, it's not just a simple case of targeting a certain gang. Um, you've got to start delving into you know financial interests and and who's involved. I think also just going after a political party is a big deal because that sets a precedent for how you take down a political party that maybe has deep involvement in political uh, in crimes or is directly taking money from China. Um, the uh, the CUPP is small enough that you can perhaps do that, whereas the new party is more established. Um, it is actually, despite the fact that it's also a very small party, it is still larger. It actually has people. Um, and so if you go after a party like this, then that that's one way to build up towards larger actions. But do you remember Zhang brought this on himself? Of course, when, after he was brought back from China, where he used to live, he arrived back at the airport, of course, not in, <laughs> in, in handcuffs, holding his political manifesto in front of him. Um, yeah, and that is one of the unusual things about Taiwan, that he was so allowed to become a politician and run politics, and uh, there's just a large number of politicians that are like this, that sometimes are flagrantly guilty of crimes, or have such a visible record of past crimes, but are still politically active. And so that's, that's part of the sensitivity of, of this issue. However, I think uh, White Wolf Zhang Anle is just so notorious that when you go after him, that there, there won't be as much blowback. It really is a fine line, though, isn't it? Because, you know, as you say, there are other politicians who have a history of alleged mm. criminal behaviour mm-hmm. um, who are not members of his party. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to go after one person, then you have to go after everyone, I would say. You can't be mm-hmm. seen to be just singling out one particular party, um, which could then could then, as he has done, turn around and say, oh, this is just because we're pro-China. And then, you know, you run the risk of of being seen to be undemocratic. Mm-hmm. That's always a fine line to tread. And, of course, there was a, the Central Election Commission this week, of course, going in the same vein. They rejected the um, referendum for the banning of Chinese flags. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, that's been discussed for a while, but just that, 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 uh, that petition just didn't take off. Um, it didn't push- fly. It didn't fly. Flags. That's right. It's like a flag. <laughs> um, with that, I think that it would be interesting how the government would have responded to it had it got enough uh, signatures. Because if you do start banning Chinese flags, then that makes you seem undemocratic and limiting freedom of speech. Um, it's one of the contradictions in, China, in, in Taiwan that, with regards to these kind of displays, even if China's hoping to next Taiwan is part of free speech, that there's a party that just advocates for uh, the takeover of Taiwan by China, and that's part of free speech. And so it's a contradiction. Um, it raises questions of free speech and platforming or no platforming or what is justified in terms of banning certain political expression or not. I don't know. 
Right, and moving on from that, we'll talk about defence issues. Now, President Tsai Ing-wen told senior government and military officials this week that her administration will spend more than one-fifth of its proposed 2019 defence budget on the development of indigenous weapons systems and platforms. Now, according to Tsai, the government hopes to increase defence spending by 18.3 billion NT next year to total 346 billion NT, a figure that represents 2.16% of Taiwan's GDP. And Tsai said of that that total, 21.3% will be spent on developing indigenous defence systems as part of efforts to boost defence capabilities. And I spoke with Shepherd Media's senior Asia correspondent Wendell Minnick about some of these indigenous weapon systems. Good evening, Wendell. Good evening, Gavin. So let's begin with the biggest of these domestic projects that President Tsai Ing-wen has been talking about this week, and that being the development of a submarine fleet. Now, of course, the President said that Taiwan has been making breakthroughs in resolving bottlenecks encountered in the design and manufacturing of said submarines through international cooperation and other efforts here at home. Now, there has been reports recently that six companies have submitted design proposals for the diesel-electric attack submarines, and they include two European and two US companies, as well as an Indian company and a Japanese defence contractor. So what do you think about these foreign companies, Wendell, trying to get into the submarine design here in Taiwan? Well, not much is known about them at this particular point. Uh, if I was favourable, I would go with the Japanese uh, model, of course. They seem to have uh, tremendous luck at, at developing submarines. Uh, the biggest problem with submarines, of course, is when you need them, and uh, Taiwan, as you know, is being uh, surrounded now with the South China Sea going underneath uh, Chinese control and the East China Sea also under pressure. Um, you know, uh, these submarines might be too little too late. I mean, do you think China would kick up a stink if these foreign companies did try to help Taiwan develop its submarine fleet? Yeah, absolutely. These companies will do everything they can financially, economically, politically, socially, whatever they can do to stop these programs. I mean, but do you see Taiwan getting help from Japan, or is that a bit of an outside outside guess, so to speak? Well, I, I would prefer that Japan just hand over some of their older submarines to Taiwan. They, 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 they don't last very long. At least they don't keep them in, in, in commission. Uh, they get rid of them very early. Uh, so I would rather to see them get the uh, older Japanese submarines for free uh, rather than have to build them. But, yeah, Japan has problems with export defense items, as you know, and they're just working through the kinks of that. And what about the Indian company? I'm not real happy with the Indian products. Um, they can be a little bit uh, weighed down with uh, bureaucracy, and uh, I would prefer to get something that's uh, time-tested. The propellers are a big deal, uh, so uh, the sound of a propulsion unit has to be extremely quiet, and I'd prefer to go with a Japanese design. And talk about the European companies, because, of course, I mean, do you think there's much chance of a European company actually being allowed to help Taiwan? Uh, the way European uh, companies and, 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 and their countries, of course, the governments are with China, it seems highly unlikely that they will be allowed to participate. Uh, China's influence in Europe is, is massive economically and politically. Right, moving on, and of course the Advanced Jet Trainer Program is another one of these 
indigenous defence development programmes the government is proposing. And that's, of course, the Exat 5 or Blue Magpie, which is, of course, being designed by Aerospace Industrial Development Corporation. So obviously there's been problems with this. AIDC plans to build 66 of these jet trainers and the, they have said that the maiden flight will take place in 2020 and 66 of the aircraft will be delivered by 2026. But there's been much said that there's not much chance of this happening. Well, that's a tight schedule for this kind of aircraft. Uh, you have to remember that previously AIDC built the idea of fighter, an indigenous defense fighter, but they were only able to do that with a, a significant American assistance and uh, Lockheed Martin sort of uh, assistance. So you don't have that with this new trainer. So they'll have to start from scratch and build from uh, their own designs. The other problem is that when the IDF was finished uh, 20 years ago, uh, AIDC laid off all these engineers and trainers and, and folks. And, and, and where did they go for work? And they went to China. So uh, we lost, or at least they did, they lost some brilliant engineers that learned how to build these types of aircraft, ironically to the enemy. Right. Of course, there's been obviously things said that even if Taiwan builds this trainer, it's not able to train pilots to fly the F-35, of course, which is a jet fighter that Taiwan wants. Yeah, um, the Americans have a specific trainer program for the F-35, and uh, the Magpie that they want to build doesn't look like it's going to be able to do that transition from the uh, single propeller to the jet trainer to the advanced jet trainer to the F-35. It doesn't look like it's going to be able to fill that gap. Um, it, it, it might be a fine aircraft for basic uh, combat training, but it's not going to teach them how to fly the F-35. I mean, could this leave Taiwan's Air Force with a problem? They have a trainer that they can't actually train their pilots to fly proper jets on. Well, this is a common theme in Taiwan's procurement. You know, it all ends in tears. Um, you know, big plans uh, that uh, will deliver products 10, 15, 20 years after they really need them is a common theme here. So we'll see what happens. Right, and some other local indigenous defence development. Of course, the Army, or the Navy rather, is looking to build several frigates, high-speed mine-laying ships and new corvettes. And of course, all this statement comes about building these ships after the debacle that was the recent debacle with Qingfu shipbuilding, of course. Yeah, uh, Qingfu, what a mess. Um, yeah, I, I actually attended the corvette stealth uh, unveiling there, and... Um, discovered to my horror that uh, they had hired Vietnamese construction workers to put together this ultra-secret stealth uh, Corvette. Uh, if that's the way that they're going to do things in the future, the Navy here is in, in big trouble. Um, um, you know, I'm all for them buying light frigates and Corvettes armed to the teeth with uh, anti-ship missiles and air defense systems. That's what they need. Um, but they need to protect their secrets, and they need to construct these ships uh, correctly. I mean, do you think local shipbuilders have obviously been contracted to build them, but why do you think they're hiring foreign, basic labourers to work on these vessels? It's cheap. Unfortunately, uh, the programs were originally designed for local training and hiring, uh, so you could build up an institutional memory on building these types of ships. But instead, the Vietnamese return back to their country, and they take that technological know-how and they, they help their own country build these types of platforms. 
Uh, and ironically, uh, Vietnam is a peer competitor with Taiwan in the South China Sea. It, 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 it's a, a real nightmare. Right, guess let's finally talk about missile systems. And, of course, one missile system that's been in the news this week is the one-gen cruise missile. Of course, that was developed by the Zhongshan Institute of Science and Technology. And apparently reports are saying that IDF fighters are now being equipped with this missile system. Well, the one-gen's been around for a very long time. I, I, I think at least 20 years in development. Um, yeah, uh, I've seen it uh, aboard uh, some of the aircraft, and I... I you know, we'll see what happens in a real war. Uh, but, yeah, thank God they're developing their own cruise missile capabilities and anti-ship missile capabilities because you can't really rely on the United States and other countries to continue selling you these types of sophisticated platforms. And obviously, the one gen is, a, is an air-based system. But what about land-based cruise missile systems? How's the development looking there? Well, they do deploy something called the Chengfeng 2E. We don't know its actual real name, um, but they do deploy those, and they do have land-based cruise missile capabilities. So that's a positive sign. Uh, what we don't know exactly is how many that they have built already and how effective these platforms are. And that was me in conversation with Shepherd Media's Wendell Minnick. Now, the government this week said that it's considering taking some action against airlines that opted to tow Beijing's line and change Taiwan's designation on their websites. Reports say that it's considering adjusting airlines' time slots and denying them the use of jet bridges or jetways, whichever one you want to use there. And that's for airlines who opted to change the designation to Taiwan China or Taipei China or some other title that signified Taiwan is part of the PRC. Now, airlines that opted to change the designation to something generic such as tpe taipei international airport well they could be rewarded with cheaper landing fees as part of these well ideas the government's having now the dpp has stressed that these countermeasures exist only on paper and they will undergo further evaluation before any moves are finalized but of course this didn't stop the kmt from warning the government not to make any rash decisions in response to the airline's actions and they said that the government should refrain from taking any action in cross-strait affairs that could further dampen ties with Beijing and it should instead focus on restarting negotiations on all matters relating to people's livelihoods. So there you go, Nicola. What do you think of this government? No, you have to park your aeroplane over there if you've said something about us on the website we don't like. I think that would be a great way for the Taiwanese government to shoot itself in the foot. Um, I mean, <laughs> it's just like... If you want to lose the, the moral high ground, then yeah, go ahead. I mean, first of all, um, I think it's unfair to put such a burden on airlines. So commercial commercial companies who have to work in a commercial world, and this is a they've been caught in a political problem um, that is not of their doing, and it's one that should be resolved by by governments, not by commercial companies who you know they exist to keep their employees employed and to make a profit. Um, so it's not their fault that they've come under pressure by the Chinese government. Um, by making life more difficult for them, then it's just going to play into the hands of Beijing politically as well. It's going to make China look like the good guys. Um, you know, Taiwan being awkward, and also it will lead to more isolation in Taiwan. Um, so I think this is a this is an issue that needs to be resolved politically, and not by um, kind of doing petty things like taking away air bridges from from whatever airline decides to to fly into Taipei. It is incredibly petty. Um, I don't know why this idea is gaining ground, except 
Taiwan just doesn't have a lot of good options here. Uh, there's not a lot of ways to respond in terms of China's actions, just because China is always a larger market, and uh, companies are, of course, pursuing profit. Uh, they don't want to be shut out of the Chinese market, and the Chinese market is so much larger than the Taiwanese market. Uh, as a result, there's not a lot of options you can do, and I think it's not surprising that uh, fining or punishing the airlines would be a solution that some people propose, but it just does not seem like a good idea. Again, yes, it definitely does make Taiwan look extremely petty. Um, also, just if they did want to raise this, these proposed punishments, I don't know why they only raise this now after uh, all these companies already have changed their names on their websites. They should have perhaps suggested this earlier as a way to maybe add a little pressure to these companies. Um, at the same time, yes, no matter what it does, it just if it actually does pursue action against these airlines, we haven't. Um, they're they're not the ones who have really committed the wrong here. It's China. It just doesn't look good on Taiwan. Also, these airlines, of course, they could stop coming here. Exactly. So, I mean, that's what I mean about Taiwan could just become more isolated. I mean, at the moment, it's well connected. Um, it's easy to get in and out. But it, it's going to be the Taiwanese public who ends up suffering if airlines stop coming here. You know, we can't all go on Eva Air or China Airlines, good as they are. Like People need to be well connected um, uh, for businesses, for for holiday travel, for, for everything, really. Um, I just don't see any good coming out of, of these proposals. I mean, perhaps there could be something that could be done um, more to incentivize airlines um, to, to not cave to to Beijing's pressure but it, it, you know it's just a, it's a very difficult as Brian said it's a very difficult issue to resolve and I actually don't think there is a solution and of course the government came out with this idea on paper as they said <laughs> as they're of course expanding the airport at Taoyuan to get more flights so mm. it seems to be running contrary ways here let's make airlines we don't like park over there <laughs> but let's make the airport bigger for more aeroplanes mm. it seems to be a case of the left hand not knowing the right hand is doing or just uh, statements by politicians hoping to maybe placate their constituents that they're doing something, but, well, hopefully hopefully they aren't actually stupid enough to follow through on this. Um, yeah, as, as was mentioned, it's, it's a big deal whenever an airline has a route that comes to Taiwan or has a direct route that comes to Taiwan, uh, particularly with American airlines. I mean, not American airlines, but American airlines in general, American air carriers. Um, and so, why would you try to punish them and perhaps even limit more contact with Taiwan? Um, I mean, China, this was actually a move that was well thought out. Um, it was a trap for Taiwan, and Taiwan is pretty tied up here. Um, Taiwan is always seeking to become more international, which means having more air travel, but Beijing can constrain it through means like this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think there's there are other improvements that could be made to Taoyuan Airport, more coffee shops, for example, <laughs> rather than you know <laughs> blocking international airlines from doing business there. And we'll move on from airlines to work, and that being the National Development Council this week, stepping up its efforts to attract more people, well, to come here to work by completing a new draft Economic Immigration Act that targets three categories of foreign talent, those being professionals, mid-level skilled workers, and Taiwanese expats and their children. Now, the draft comes nearly two months after the government unveiled another outline of measures which also aimed at attracting more overseas talent to meet Taiwan's needs in developing key industries and also easing a much-talked-about pending manpower shortage. But, of course, local business groups, well, they've been quick to criticise the latest bill, saying they're not very optimistic about it as it fails to include investment immigration. Now, General Chamber of Commerce Chairman Lai Jung-e is being quoted as saying that the government's decision to remove 
or exclude the option of investment immigration is a bit of a problem because it's basically a rejection of funds that could be invested in Taiwan. While Tsai Lian-sheng, the Secretary-General of the Chinese National Federation of Industries, says the exclusion blocks foreign investment in Taiwan, and he also says it's a missed opportunity to promote economic activity. But according to NDC Deputy Chief Gao Shengui, investment immigration was excluded from the draft act because Taiwan already has fairly accommodating regulations on investment immigration compared with other countries. And Gao said the NDC was considering that move to actually ease it, but the Financial Supervisory Commission stepped in and insisted that it keep the ceiling for investment immigration as is now. And that, if you're interested, means that people who invest 15 million NT in a business that employs five or more people, or who invest 30 million NT or more in government bonds or other financial products, are eligible to apply for permanent residency here after three years. So, Brian, I mean, this Mm. new jobs gig from the NDC and the bill, it's pretty much the same as the last one, one could argue. I think so. At the same time, I think there's such... uh, Taiwan sometimes economically shoots itself in the foot because it is so afraid of money laundering or uh, just false companies and so forth from the Financial Supervisory Commission that it doesn't open itself to foreign investment. And sometimes it's very difficult to actually uh, conduct international trade. Um, a lot of bank, bank, uh, banks in Taiwan don't actually have the kind of uh, offer the services that have become really commonplace in other parts of the world for conducting international business, uh, particularly with regards to e-commerce or newer developments such as that. And so it is kind of surprising. Um, with the change in, in the immigration laws, previously it was actually, that, that did seem much more open routes to um, obtain residency status in Taiwan through investment, but now it's, it doesn't seem to be. Um, it's, it's, kind of, it's a little puzzling to me. It's maybe one way in which uh, immigration policy and economic policy are just not on the same footing right now. Nicola, do you think that the government is throwing away a missed opportunity for investment by sort of not lowering, we'll call it, the threshold for investment immigration? Well, it could be. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's perhaps something that's worth um, at least doing a trial to see to see how it works out. You know, kind of make clear that this is a short term opportunity and see who takes it up and just see how it works out. I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with a bit of trial and error. Um, but you know, certainly there are other more. If it does want, if Taiwan does want investment, I think it has to bear in mind that there are other, possibly more attractive locations that people can go to as well. If it really wants to attract people, um, you know, other countries with with immigration uh, investment uh, will give a passport. Um, you know, not just a permanent right to remain. Um, so I think, you know, if Taiwan does want to attract uh, the best kind of investment, then perhaps it needs to up its game a bit. Well, I also wonder if it's a fear that there will be an influx of people that come in as uh, immigration uh, that just uh, obtain residency status in Taiwan through investment, um, as is the concern with a lot of different tax havens in different parts of the world, particularly in, in East Asia. And I think Taiwan is a, as a, is a kind of odd country with a strange legal status. There are these kind of concerns. Um, at the same time, it's hard to strike a balance, I think, just in some ways not allowing for Taiwan to become a, let's say, hub for money laundering or what have you, or just uh, a way in which you know rich people can just somehow buy citizenship, but at the same time also being internationally competitive and making it attractive to investors. But yeah. of course, countries that do allow, some countries that allow people to buy citizenship do run afoul of their own people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and probably that's also a concern.
Yeah, I mean, it's a legitimate concern. If you look at central London, where there's, there is a housing crisis in London, and yet in the centre of London, there's lots of empty apartments because mm-hmm. very rich people come and buy up these blocks and then, you know, don't bother to rent them out. They're just, just seen as a financial investment. And I think that's the kind of situation that you do need to avoid. And as you say, just to, to, to get that balance so that you're not too protectionist, but you don't just kind of open up your country to like um, unfair <laughs> investment practices. But you mentioned the passport, Brian. I mean, do you think the rich would be queuing up to get an ROC passport? Um, I think probably not. I think that the rich, you know, they they go for where there's low tax rates. Um, Taiwan might not be the best place currently. Oftentimes they go to, for example, like Hong Kong or Singapore or places like that. Um, It's a question. It's a question if, uh, I mean, I think think Taiwan is trying to avoid that. also, I just think that there's always a concern about China, whether China will take some action against Taiwan. That's always a block for rich people coming here to have a place to stay or just as a way to, uh, to you know, if they put their resources in Taiwan, then they have to think about that threat, uh, particularly also because the rich tend to do business with China, too. So if you put all your resources in Taiwan, that's another liability. So you're a millionaire, Nicola. You do invest in Taiwan or St. Kitts and Nevis. Mm, I think I'd definitely go for beaches <laughs> if I had that amount of money. <laughs> But of course, going back to the airport, we were talking about airports earlier, going back to airports, if you were a rich businessman, living in Taiwan would make more sense because it's easier to get to other places, one could argue, Brian. Um, that's Yeah, that is true. Uh, particularly if you're doing a lot of business in Asia, it is somewhat centrally located. Um, it's close to China, but maybe not too close. It, it depends. It depends. Um, there's some reasons to come to Taiwan, and some people do come to Taiwan for that reason, um, because it is close to China, but maybe a little... It's, you know, it's politically not part of China. Um, it's it's trade-off, I think. It's also a pleasant place to live. I mean, mm. I think people come here because they... they think it's just you know it's it's easy people are friendly um you know you can have a nice lifestyle here but when it comes to connectivity i think you know you'd just be just as connected in singapore or hong kong or you know other asian capitals there's Saint a Kitts lot of nevis yeah i think that might be a little bit more of a retirement plan than an actual business model but yeah Anyway, before we go this week, Taiwan scored a bit of a rare victory in the politics of the world of sport this past weekend when the ROC flag made an appearance at the opening ceremony of the 2018 Gay Games in Paris. Now, the flag was waved not only by the Taiwanese team, but also by teams from other countries. And apparently the Taiwanese athletes entered the stadium where the Games were taking place, waving the ROC flag and a banner which read the first Asian country to legalise equal marriage. Now, members of the French team and a team from San Francisco also reportedly waved the ROC flag. And while Beijing was rather insistent that the name of the Taiwanese team was changed from Taiwan to Taipei in late July for the Gay Games, China appears to have gone rather quiet on the flag-waving issue during the opening ceremony. It's a feel-good story. I think that a lot in Taiwan will take heart this, uh, particularly because there was support from the international world, as it is perceived, um, that athletes from other countries did take up Taiwan's cause. Um, yet Chinese pressure in, in international sporting bodies will continue. Uh, the gay games notably uh, shifted to make Taiwan participate as Taipei, quote unquote, um, after the after Taiwan lost the rights for the uh, East Asian Youth Games, which is it's a higher ranked sporting event because it's under directly under the Olympics or the East Asian Olympics Committee. Um, and so it's hard to see there will be these moments of resistance, but the larger situation is still Chinese pressure across the board um, institutionally. 
Yeah, I mean, it's always a happy story, isn't it, to see Taiwan get a bit of international support and some solidarity and, and people kind of backing up Taiwanese athletes who really, I, I feel for them because, you know, they, they really, they're not allowed to compete under their own flag or their own country name. And it's good to see that support. Um, I, I think also on a slightly more serious note, though, that, I mean, that banner wasn't actually correct, was it, that, that same-sex marriage has been legalized mm, in Taiwan? And I think that's a kind of timely reminder to the Taiwan government as well that this is an issue that where they can get international uh, support and credibility and they haven't managed to push that through yet they've really been dragging their feet on acting on on the court decision on, on same-sex marriage so I think that's a, a bit of a reminder to them and it's very possible that in the window of I think one year before they have to legalize it in some form that another country will actually legalize gay marriage first in Asia um, so it is it is a timely reminder. Um, unfortunately, I think the Thai mission is taken to uh, using this as a way to boost Taiwan's international credibility while just not actually taking concrete actions on the issue. Um, particularly, and of, yeah. And of course, s- talking of flags and sporting events, and this weekend, the organisers of the petition, of course, for the referendum to allow Taiwan to uh, compete in the Tokyo Olympic Games in 2020 under the name Taiwan are having a big rally. Apparently, they're going to push for more signatures. Do you see them getting more signatures or...? It's hard to say. Um, I believe there were short 80,000 signatures the last time I checked. It's That's still a large amount to get in even just a weekend. Um, Chinese actions against Taiwan have supposedly raised the amount of people that are signing on. Um, I also just see increased numbers of volunteers and through the urban landscape. Um, but it's a question. And even then, if it gets through, then it's possible the government will not... Uh, allow this to actually go through by because referendums are not by the by the the recent changes to referendum act you're not supposed to be able to have a referendum on the name of the country or the status of the country or the constitution and they could perhaps rule that this challenges that um, in a way that a referendum would not be allowed to pass by the supervisory commission I'm kind of surprised that they don't have the the amount of signatures that they need already. I mean, when you look at every mm. poll that comes out, it's always, you know, the number of people who identify as Taiwanese is, is mm. always high. Mm. So I'm surprised that there hasn't been more public support for this. I'm surprised, too. Um, I think mostly it is due to lack of resources. Uh, the, there are some very large names on board with this, uh, significant political figures. But and and I I believe that they did strategically pick this issue because it was one which they thought would resonate with the Taiwanese public in terms of pushing towards some sort of let's say referendum on Taiwanese independence or what have you. But even then, uh, perhaps it's just due to lack of resources committed to this. That's that's my impression. It doesn't even have to be an independence issue though. I mean, it's a kind mm. of easy hit. Like why why should Taiwanese athletes not be able to compete mm. as exactly. Taiwan? Mm-hmm. Um, well, we know you know historically the. Mm-hmm why but um, I mean things have moved on Um, and if the majority of the country identify as Taiwanese then their athletes should be competing as Taiwan I think the International Olympic Committee might disagree with you there yeah (laughs) we might disagree on a lot of things even if if it gets through then that might just hurt at the end of the day yeah, and of course, the Premier this week said that nothing will change. Exactly, yeah. And so he has indicated that he doesn't have interest in pushing on the issue, despite the fact that in the past he was much more open in his uh, advocacy for Taiwanese independence. I, I do think, though, that the two issues shouldn't really be confused. You can, yeah, have yeah. Your, you can have athletes competing under the name Taiwan without it being a push for Taiwanese independence. Mm-hmm. I mean, they I can't... I think like, that's the group of people that are backing it, uh, the, the, the sports yeah, issue. Yeah, yeah. 
Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Nicola Smith. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.